and welcome to another episode of A Ghost in the Magazine. I'm Steph. I'm Mel. Hey. That's Mel. And every time I have someone new on the podcast, I do this and I don't warn them ahead of time that I'm going to do it. So I have to know, what is your favorite scary movie? Oh, that's a really tough one. It's my favorite question. Honestly, I'm going to have to go with like, what's my favorite collection, you know, Mm. a kind of a, I like characters, like I like Michael Myers, I like the old school slashers, I loved Scream, but I loved Nev Campbell mostly. So let's just put it there. Um, So I really kind of like the ones with cult followings, I'm gonna have to say just, just for ease, probably, ooh, the Living Dead series was pretty good too. So that's a hard one, but I might say, I might say Scream in general, just because it was a whole vibe in the 90s. I literally, you're making me so happy right now, because <laughs> did you see, I mean, we won't talk about it because it's fresh, but did you see the latest Scream movie? I didn't, but I've been thinking about it. That's kind of why it's <sighs> in the front of my mind now. All I'm going to say is watch it as soon as you can. All right. <laughs> I will not say anything. I will not say anything, but Anytime someone asks me what's my favorite scary movie, I because I have this podcast, I have the answer ready. And it's always, it's a really solid two-way tie between Scream and Child's Play. (laughs) And it's specifically because I too love characters. I also love Nev Campbell. It's because of the like success of the franchises that came out of both of those movies. Not like, I'm not always a fan of a sequel because sometimes like you did everything you could in the original you should have stopped there but these both had longevity you know what yeah. I mean obviously in in different directions child's play went more like horror comedy but I love to yeah. laugh I can appreciate both so excellent answers thank you thank you and I'm sorry I sprung it on you but it's my specialty we're here for a very special reason kickstarting black history month the same way that we did last year they either have black directors or they have predominantly black cast or black themes that are important. And so today we're going to be covering Tales from the Hood, which I forgot when it came out, but it's older. And it's kind of startling how all of the themes are still incredibly prevalent today. And it's a little bit sad. I'm, I'm going to be honest. But Tales from the Hood is a classic. It is anthology style. And I love that. It's very like Tales from the Crypt, which I'm sure was a little spin on that. But uh, I love stories within stories. And this one did such a good job. <laughs> like, yeah, it was good. So the first story is about Clarence. And Clarence was a young Black cop. He was a rookie. Man, it gets ugly really fast. So he's in with a group of older white cops. They're quote unquote seasoned. They pull over a man who is a notable figure in the community. Um, He's a black man and he's trying to like end drug violence in the community. And this (laughs) group of cops, they're bad cops, you know, like they thrive on being dirty and like letting drugs ruin the community contributing to it he's also you know trying to stop intentionally cop corruption because it's contributing to the drug problem and it's gross 
like it's so great i mean i've seen a lots and lots of movies where and i feel like it's it's like it's a main trope of cop movies to have dirty cops involved with drugs and like encouraging that and um it sucks to be the one young cop who is the black one and who's like you know this isn't right and you can't really say anything and they send him away and that's when they start roughing this guy up he's distracted he doesn't see everything but then when he does see it you know he tries to put a stop to it he doesn't have a whole lot of power there in that situation but what I think is important is that he stopped being a cop after that because I mean it was wrong so it obviously affected him a lot it was kind of hard to watch honestly and they play this song they play this song and I meant to look up what it is but I don't think I could sit there and like listen to the whole song and I don't know if you I had it with the captions on so I was very aware of the lyrics um, but they were talking about black body swinging in the summer breeze like an old like hymnal and I it was a lot <laughs> it was a lot for me I think there's a lot of music going on in terms of intentional triggers for a societal mirror, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, firstly, you can't talk about film and especially about Black film and about Black film in correlation with music without talking about Spike Lee. You know, mm -hmm. so I think in this instance, the music is particularly intentionally triggering. <laughs> yes, I would agree. And it, you know, as hard as that is I think it's wonderful because I think it's important that these types of things evoke a reaction out of people I, I can't imagine being a white person white people honestly even horror fans probably skip this movie they probably just flat out skip it because it forces them to, it would force them to like acknowledge that this is a thing and I mentioned this recently like all of that history is being whitewashed. There are young white kids who think that slavery is not even real. And it's a lot. It's a lot. So here we are. <laughs> so here we are. And one of the things that I remember one of the white cops telling him is that you, you never rat out a fellow officer. But these men are not officers of the law. They're not. They are criminals. It's not right. So this young man, Clarence, suffers for a year dealing when he's drinking because he has trauma from this situation and he lost his job like you know and it was probably very hard for him I don't think he did actually bounce back from that on the uh, year anniversary of this incident the ghost of Morehouse comes back and haunts him and he comes back like he appears like a Christ figure on the crucifix and tells Clarence you know like it's time to make things right in this situation so he gathers the cops at the cemetery where Morehouse is buried and they're still dickheads a year later because no one's checking them their main goal is to make him disappear and so they say you know if we go to this grave with you like that's it and he says yes yeah. so they follow him and I'm laughing, but it's more out of like discomfort because I can like I wouldn't even want to be an actor who played this role because they end up peeing on his grave. And I'm just Yeah. I think those two scenes in particular, the scene where Morehouse appears as like a Christ life zombie, mm -hmm. and the one where they're urinating on Morehouse's grave are both meant to have the viewer 
call into question white morality, which basically is non-existent. So, and it's constantly changing based on the, the needs and wants and desires of white supremacy, essentially. So even a Christ-like figure can be defiled in instances where white supremacy prevails. So I think that's just meant to show us that there really are no boundaries when it comes to the lack of values and the lack of morals that, you know, racism as a whole in companies. So I kind of liked those images, especially, you know, yes, I think it's hard, especially since we live in a, a predominantly Christian country, mm-hmm. I think asking like, you know, if, if you're a Christ-like person, how can we allow these atrocities against humanity to happen? Well, they happen under the guise of white supremacy. So. That part. And that that was a thing that came up a lot, like when the pandemic first happened and there were all of the, the protests because everything was just sort of going crazy. And I really felt that in my personal life, not to go on tangents, but because I was one of maybe three Black people or people of color in general, even at a company that I worked at for five years. And um, these are people I eat lunch with every day. You know, these are people I sit in cubicles with every day. And when that was happening, I remember hanging up a poster like, this is where the protest is going to be here. If you're interested at all in showing solidarity, here you go. And there was a lot of silence in that building for a couple of days. And I'm like, that's totally fine. You know, that it is what it is. And I just have this feeling like this is something that's not gonna go away so yeah this guy this big piece of shit he's peeing on the grave and then he's bullying the other cops into also peeing on the graves which is interesting which is very interesting he doesn't want to be the only one viewed as but he's too deep and he's like i can't reverse now i can't take it back so well that also tells us how much things like you know, white supremacy rely on other things like misogyny Mm. and classism and patriarchal ideas. You know, I thought it was very, you know, I would have felt sexually assaulted if someone was asking me, forcing me to pee on something. And I'm like, these guys don't even look at it like that. You know, and I think a lot of it is because the culture of sadomisogyny is so intertwined with racism that they don't recognize one from the other. And that's why I say they're both just totally without morals. That's an incredible take. (laughs) Just, it's true. It's very true. And all of it just, like, you can see the discomfort in the other guy's faces, but they're not going to say no. And the guy, I mean, he eventually did come over to unzip his pants, but it's too late because Morehouse ghosts rise from the grave and tries to, well, he basically sucks him back into the ground. (laughs) I mean, it just kind of, over from there Morehouse does get his revenge um and he kills the cops and then I thought the coolest part was the last one the last death was the guy who I felt like was almost straddling the fence like he wasn't on Morehouse's side but you can tell he was very aware that what was happening wasn't right but not in any way that would make him change his behavior because I mean he would have been seen as the minority and he was not willing to do that and then he got sucked into the crucifix painting and that's how 
And I thought it was crazy because that's the one who got all the used needles. Yeah. In his body. And I'm what a way to go. All of them are dead, but Morehouse doesn't let Clarence off the hook because at the end of the day, he didn't he didn't do anything about it. And I understand his reasons for not doing it, but at the same time, it's just as wrong. Yeah. See, I don't even know if it was a matter of letting him off the hook or not. I think the idea is that in each one of these little segments, like Black people get got one way or another. And Mm -hmm. that's the reality of it. That's the part we want to escape in film, but you're not really allowed to escape in certain genres of of film, especially Mm -hmm. Spike films. I mean, you know, Boys in the Hood, you know, Mm -hmm. do the right thing. Anyway, so I think that that's a part of it. Like no matter what Clarence had done, even if he had done what's appropriate, they would have killed him right then and there. Mm -hmm. So I I think that Clarence knew that, you know, it's part of why he was drinking to excess towards the end, you know, that one way or the other, that there's no way out, like life for a black man's a rock and a hard place kind of thing. So I think each one of them is supposed to compound our sorrow in that way. Uh, I mean, mean, yeah, it's very valid because at the end of this, I mean, he went through the initial situation, he went through the revenge, and then he was blamed for their deaths and institutionalized, and that's just where he'll be. So that was a lot. I totally skipped over how these stories are being facilitated because I was so excited to just jump right in. These stories are being told by a funeral director who's got like crazy mad scientist hair. And there are three young gang members who are uh, trying to get drugs from him that he found in the alley. And instead of just giving it to him he's making them go through and hear the stories of the people who have died so that was the first story and the second one I saw this movie when I was a child which I didn't remember until Walter's story because it scared me really badly (laughs) I probably shouldn't have been watching that as a kid but that's a common theme for a lot of movies uh, and books that I've read Walter's story is about a child. He's a new kid in elementary school. This one was also hard. He's picked on a lot and he shows up to school with bruises. And when his teacher, who's a really good man, asks him about it, you know, he says that there's a monster in his house. His father is dead and the monster showed up afterwards. So his teacher tells him, if you draw the things that you're scared of, uh, and you tear it up, or, or a little girl told her, told him that. I think one of the girls at school told him that. If you draw what you're scared of and then tear it up and throw it away, and then it goes away, which it's kind of like a, a ritual. A lot of people do that now, like manifesting your desires or things like that. And you, you write them down, either you put them under your pillow or you burn it to release that. Um, so I thought that was really precious yeah. for this film is kind of laced with Mm -hmm. superstition and ritualistic kind of ideas because this it's tailored towards black people's fears Mm -hmm. and a lot of time and like common rhetoric and canonical literature and movies and films black fear is directly related to superstition and 
in America is based on superstition, superstition and religious ritual. Mm -hmm. So the idea of heightening fear specifically for black viewers, especially at that time of film, yes. without using some of those social triggers like cop violence, gang mm -hmm. violence, drug violence, those things are specifically scary to black people. Yes. Same way that superstition is seen predominantly as kind of like a black engagement with our historical fears, at least. Yeah. Now that's kind of a stereotype, but I think in this it, at that time that Spike Lee was playing with that idea of black fear and superstition. I agree, and I think that that might be another reason why white people may steer away from this movie, and they may have seen it and just not gotten I mean they definitely wouldn't get the same things out of the movie but now I'm really curious to know like if I could find any white views on this movie like through Google uh, I sort of wish I had looked but you know this movie <laughs> been wrong sure you can, but they'll probably <laughs> focus on the uh, segment story that's about the dolls because a uh, lot <sighs> common you know ideology about black superstition is based around voodoo you know okay. so there's that stereotype that all black religious ritual is voodoo so I think you can find it but you might not be pleased with <laughs> analysis there I'm gonna take that as extra credit because now I have to and I honestly can't wait to get to the doll story because it's my favorite it is so good okay so We'll continue with Walter. So Walter has that in the back of his mind and he drew a picture of this monster, which is this big green thing with like glowing eyes, claws, standard child monster in the closet image, basically. I do have a question in the middle of all this. Like at what point would you get DCF involved as a person from the school? Because Bruce's and they were rather large, not like a normal, oh, kids fall down all the time. I am an adult and I still fall every now and then. I have scars everywhere from tripping as a kid, but I just, I felt like that was a little, but then again. I think the answer to that question is that, you know, child protection laws really are young. You know, even mm -hmm. child labor laws are very young, like probably in our parents' lifetime. So I think the idea that the procedure was very different for stepping in and intervening between a child and parent, even, you know, 20 years ago, even 30 years ago, it was very different because the teacher goes to the house to speak to the parents personally. And I think that, that might have been more procedural at the time. But as we know it now, there's a lot more like child protection laws in place, but that's new, you know, okay. or you could do whatever to your kids. That's the sad part. And if you were a impoverished person in a low income area, children slip through the cracks all the time. That's true. Uh, and very, very sad. Uh, I, but I also do think him showing up at the house while, <laughs> you know, that may have been the thing. It was dark when he showed up and there was not a phone call placed in advance, you know, what I mean so that was like a little off but I do think it matters that this new boy mattered to him enough for him to show up at the house and try to get a gauge for what was going on in his personal life so before that this little boy draws a picture of the boy who bullies him 
you know, and he did crumple that picture up and this boy ended up falling down the stairs and breaking both his arms and legs, which is a lot. Uh, But um, he shows up at the house and the mom answers the door in a robe with, you know, her legs out. (laughs) you know to each their own he talks with the mom a little bit and she's all right until he mentions the monster and then she gets very upset and she calls walter in and you know scolds him for making up stories she tells the teacher to leave and her boyfriend comes home who is obviously the monster they show scenes in between that of the monster coming into walter's room but they don't show him it's very scary makes monster sounds and it's obviously just this man who i mean it's horrific especially for a child who hits them you know the teacher is going to leave but everything gets crazy and he hears the abuse so he runs in to sort of you know save the day and this man, he's kind of small, like the abusive man, he's kind of small. And I think it's important that he's small, because that just goes to show it really doesn't matter, you know, the size, small men are still capable of incredible violence. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest part is, is in, or at least what was most sad to me, is that this family of three people, the mom, the stepdad, and the son, is kind of a trope example of what Black families are sort of left with in terms Mm -hmm. of their coping device. Well, how does the Black male lead figure cope with anger, with violence? How Mm -hmm. does the Black woman lead figure cope with over-sexuality? How does the Black child cope with divine escapism? Mm-hmm. And so I think all those things are kind of a part of a common archetype for Black characters. But sadly, it's not a characterization. It's really just an expose of their coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. But also, it's proof that it does not a family make. So no. it's sort of sad, the type of pressure that Black families are expected to prevail under. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's a, I mean, this is kind of like a blueprint. There are lots of situations just like this, you know? So, okay, the way that they conquer him is with this painting or this picture that Walter drew of him. So they crumple him up and the effect here was very good (laughs) of him. His arms, and it reminded me honestly a lot. I one of my favorite scenes in Child's Play is when Chucky is he goes back to coincidentally his voodoo guy and needs him to explain how he gets out of the doll body. And even after he tells him, he still kills him and with a voodoo doll and you know breaks his limbs and ends up stabbing it. It's a, a lot like this. Walter takes back his power and crumples this man up and then they burn him. But the image you're left with of the the burnt puddle of man on the floor is incredible. But these young gang members who are in this funeral home are literally looking at this burnt puddle of man in a, um, you know, what's the thing called? The coffin, okay, the casket, which like, you know, even on a regular day, that's traumatic, but they're just trying to get the drugs from this man. 
And, you know, then he moves on to another story of a man named Duke who is running for a political position in office, running for governor, I think it is. And he makes some really interesting choices. First of all, he moves into an old plantation, which I hate because I used to be married. And when I was in the process of planning my wedding, I found it incredibly distasteful that white people specifically drink every time you say white people in this podcast episode white people specifically choosing plantations as their wedding venue it was so distasteful to me it doesn't matter how beautiful the building is it is literally painted in the blood of slaves like people were literally captured from their homes and forced to to live here and were beaten and killed and starved and just assaulted and treated less than and and you can't see any of that when you're choosing a place to dedicate yourself to someone for the rest of your life totally agree no and I'm from Virginia it's like plantation land you know and I I come to learn since you know getting away from the American South and living in other places and traveling that typically cultures that are concerned about their longevity, that don't have a lot of future, become over consumed and obsessed with their past, with their history. Um, Like I have some indigenous heritage in my family too. And those people were, you know, primarily nomadic. Mm -hmm. And that that gives me a sense of pride because it tells me that they were willing to let go of things and move on from things for the survival of an overall spiritual culture, right? And I see other cultures like mainstream white American culture, just clinging on to things like statues and plantations. I can see that as a desperate kind of, you know, plea, hope that there's a future for this culture. I'm so sorry. You said statues, and I immediately think of all the people like crying about the Confederate statues being knocked down. And like, but I'm like, but what do they stand for to you? Did that what does it mean to you? I had a mm, I had a coworker who um, you know, her husband is a cop. She's you know, she's white, they're white. While all that was going on, you know, she made it a point. God, I hope she never hears this. She made it a point to tell, basically tell me in a roundabout way that she, you know, supported what I was going through, but there were reasons why she wouldn't be out there and blah, 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 whatever. And I remember hearing her saying something about the statue. I understand, but it's history. It's bad history. Knock that shit down. If you want to be a better America and you want to stand for bigger things, get rid of that shit, you know? Throw all the Confederate flags in the garbage. Make a new flag. Stand for something that matters, that's filled with love for your fellow human. You know what I mean? critical as well because as we know western culture in general is very good at history erasure and Mm. cultural erasure you know so to say what a shame to erase a whole history of culture (laughs) know that there are silent words in that sentence let's just Mm -hmm. say that Mm -hmm. yeah they're very 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 loud in the silence so duke lives in this plantation he runs his campaign out of this plantation he has a whole man and i know there are pr people i i get it but he has a whole man 
who whose job is to make him presentable because he's scum of the earth racist man he and he is not ashamed of it but it's this man's job to be like oh i hear you phrase it like this and then you're less offensive not think differently maybe you need some sensitivity training maybe you shouldn't be running for office now you don't sound as offensive and he makes a lot of money doing it i think he said ten thousand dollars a week yeah he did yeah he did so (laughs) this is a throwback film so i i know that is the thing that really got me because i'm like okay literally i guarantee you some of these exact conversations took place during the trump campaign i promise you someone was making way more than ten thousand dollars a week to get this man the presidency that's all i'm saying and i can say it he's not the president anymore i don't feel bad I mean, he said so many outwardly offensive things that mm-hmm. I think, you know, it was obvious they're making a point that certain elected f- officials can do no wrong. I mean, he mm-hmm. outright said it's looking like a minstrel show out on my lawn because there were Black protesters. <laughs> it just, some things were so offensive. And of course, it had nothing to do with his popularity. It didn't impact it at all. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> that is, that is really says something about Americans. I'm, I'm, okay (laughs) i could talk about that for 1200 years so i'm just gonna this plantation originally belonged to a man who when the slaves were supposed to be set free like america said we we don't do this anymore and we need to figure out how to uh get these people to freedom this man said no he didn't want to see them walk free off his land and so he butchered them all he hanged several from the trees in his thing. And I have like the heebie-jeebies saying it, like it chills me a lot. So they call this plantation the dollhouse because there was an old slave woman who put the souls of the slaves into these dolls. God bless her. And there's a giant painting of her sitting in a rocking chair with all of these dolls. One of my favorite subgenres. <laughs> I love slashers, much like you do. But maybe based on my favorite movies, my other go-to, Cursed Toys. Curse I love. Okay. So, so, well, we'll have to talk about the haunting another day, but how about that room full of cur- Cursed Toys there? I, yeah, I have a lot of, I have a lot of things to say uh, about that, but I love the idea. I love the idea that you can put something, well, a whole spirit, a whole soul, a whole being inside something that is supposed to be inanimate is scary it is scary something that is not supposed to get up and and walk around is doing it and it's got blood on its mind revenge in its heart and it's coming for you blood on its mind (laughs) i love it that's the setting this this painting filled with doll souls (laughs) is in his house he does not care he doesn't care about the stories he has straight up former affiliation with the KKK. And he, when he was being coached, he said something like, well, we all have a past, don't we? No. There's a funeral for, ah, for the guy because he ends up, the coach guy ends up falling down the stairs while he's videotaping this man and telling him how not to be racist. Or he flipped the script and the guy's showing him and he ends up falling down the stairs and dying. Okay. So they have his funeral. And when this guy's leaving, in the limo is one of the dolls 
And I just think the facial composition of these dolls is really scary. It reminds, they remind me, they're much, much smaller, but they remind me of Ventriloquist dummies. And then that brings me back to like old Goosebumps and Slappy the dummy. Yeah, they get <laughs> that kind of mouth crease like a dummy because they're like, almost like claymation or something. You know, yeah. what's the animation tactic there? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it's something pretty interesting, but they've got, yeah, really movable, but fixed movable facial features. So it's, yes. I love it's- it too. It's amazing. Uh, and not not to go off on another tangent, but there's only one, I'm just putting it out there, there's only like one good ventriloquist dummy horror movie, Dead Silence. And like, there is so much potential here with the hinging jaw, which yeah. that little guy definitely puts to use later. So <laughs> when Duke is running back the film, you know, because he, he doesn't have a PR guy anymore, but he needs to continue his thing. He sees that this doll was at the top of the stairs when this man fell. So that begins his descent into madness. That doll runs all the way back to this plantation. And those scenes, like the little click, click, click of the feet and like running from his point of view and you hear his little breath, terrifying terrifying don't come to my house and you know he notices that there is a white spot where a doll used to be in the painting which is glorious because then you're like when is the next white spot going to drop when is the next doll going to come out but here's a knock on the door the doll runs in right past him and sits on the stairs and is like mocking him and so he's just like slowly descending into crazy pants tries to kill this doll (laughs) like I love that kind of like manifestation of of white guilt, really, you know, like the white guilt is obsessed with being cursed. You know, it's like me and my ancestors are probably doomed for what we've done. You know, that shows up and kind of like film all the time, this Mm -hmm. idea curses and like we were talking about voodoo things outside of their power. It's kind of like you can kill the black man, but you can't kill the black man's spirit. And, you know, something about white guilt knows that it's really worried about where the black man's spirit is going to end up. Mm-hmm. Maybe in one of these little dolls. <laughs> so. Maybe. I mean, maybe you should be more worried about yourself and like what you're doing than this. Because I feel like, you know, maybe if he hadn't bought the plantation and he wasn't a racist, like crazy person, he's also would have no reason to jump out this painting and get you. So he's enraged. Okay not just at the doll he goes into the room and he like smashes the painting and she starts to bleed and I'm like oh you fucked up guy like you thought you were in trouble before she's bleeding you don't make mama bleed and so I mean while he's tussling with this guy he didn't actually kill the doll the rest of the dolls come out and they eat him (laughs) (laughs) Uh. they eat him and it's beautiful it's gorgeous I hope they're full forever seems like a natural end to me i agree i agree no more weirdos in power i mean that's not true but at least he doesn't get that job that's all i could ask for all right so the young uh gang members start to get really frustrated at this point because they're like we didn't come here for uh story time um can you just get us the shit as they refer to it they're also engrossed too i mean yeah because He's a fascinating storyteller. Regardless of who he ends up being in the end, I would probably still pop a spot and be like, you know, tell me, tell tell me more. 
Um, <laughs> so he he does end up telling one final story. This was my favorite one. Oh, was it? It just ticked all the boxes for me in terms of voyeurism onto the violence against the black body. Mm. You know, it was mm-hmm. literally set up where you could voyeur, you know, the physical violence against a almost naked black man. You know, it yeah. just seeing it just portrayed so plainly, you're like, of course, this is obscene. Very much so. Very much so. And, and mm, I don't know, I've seen that. I have a this fascination with like prison shows. Like I love what is it, sixty days in, ninety days in, one of those shows I where they—they're too triggering for me. It's, I mean, it's a lot. There, I mean, but there's a lot of. I watch a lot of true crime and things. Um, I just think it's fascinating. But I watched this movie once. It was it was literally like a prison experiment. And there were I don't think there were even any black people in this movie. But it was just like, they had some people be prisoners and some people be guards and left them down there like they were in actual prison to see and document how they would behave. I can't remember what it's called. But and I won't watch it again. I watched it once and it was a lot. And I was just like, okay, it just goes to show like what people will do when you're, they think no one's watching, you know? But so like this was sort of like that because they, you know, he consented to behavioral modification to be able to get out early. He was locked up for killing someone. So I thought it was interesting that the person they put him in a cage next to was an Aryan nation guy who literally had like white power shit tattooed on his body and immediately was like you're gonna be in my army of the chosen black people who will do crimes against other black people that this whole segment was about the concept of black on black crime Mm -hmm. so but it really was a challenge to it even though lots of black on black crime happened I guess in that segment but it showed that the circumstantial you know factors that play into that type of crime are are all racist, you know, in terms of the supremacy. It's not black on black crime. It's no. white on black on black crime. So yes. And it's a thing. Like it is a thing. It's still a thing. It's been a thing. Uh, but just to like kind of shove it in your face was a lot. I have this thing about like the sensory deprivation stuff and like the images and lots of young like there's a scene like that even in like Willy Wonka where they're on the boat and they have like those disturbing images pass by when they're in the the tunnel something about that really scares me because like you're already deprived of your normal senses and then to be like attacked by something like that is scary it's scary and then they I mean they make him watch all these scenes of black violence violence on black people and then like kkk things and and more bodies hanging and things like that but to the sounds of born to die which you know I know those were just sounds Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, but I think they're showing us a a small part of the bigger picture that in a world that's constantly trying to point out black on black crime, 
everything we consume is violent towards black mm -hmm. people you know major mainstream media is violent towards black people you know i mean everything down to the medical and food industry yeah is violent towards black people so the i think they were showing us that you know what we consume even what the young black boy young black girl black people consume is violence towards mm -hmm. their own bodies and so towards the end of that segment i mean even as he's you know being riddled with bullets he says i don't give a fuck and i think yes. the big idea is that black people are being trained and groomed to to not give any value to their own lives because we are so undervalued in society when you're constantly consuming media that says you mean nothing like at the end of the gun you might feel like i don't give a fuck I feel where he was coming from. I, 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 I kind of related to Dro. <laughs> like, man, bro. <laughs> this just, just feels so much more important, even than when I was watching it. Now that we're like sitting here talking about it, and uh, it just makes me even happier that you're here and that we're gonna put this episode out. And it'll be hard to listen to, but uh, that's just my main goal with things. Like even with the magazine, I publish all kinds of people, but my main goal is so that everyone knows where my support lies. My priority lies here. You know what I mean? So yeah, what a punching last segment. And then it comes full circle that the bullets belonged. The bullets in Jerome's body came from these boys. These boys who are being told all of these stories in this funeral home. And ultimately, it turns out, as this guy shows them their own caskets, they were killed in retaliation. It is a never-ending circle of life, unfortunately. And the worst part is, this guy turned out to be Satan the whole time. And now they're in hell. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that was, that's another piece of fear imagery for black people, you know, mm -hmm. we've also been condi conditioned under a kind of pseudo Christian doctrine where our just desserts are afterlife, they're all in paradise, and also our worst fears are in hell. So I think that that binary of good and evil, heaven and hell is kind of low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Also, I remember that this is a scary movie for black people. Yes. So it has to have all the scariest things for black people. One of the things that's been weaponized against us more than anything is Christian doctrine. So. That part, and this literally comes up constantly in this podcast because Elle and I are both former church kids and like, I, well, it's, it's been a struggle. I still believe in a God, but I do not believe, I don't believe in the God of the Christian Bible because as I, I mean, they're not going to say these things in Christian churches. They're not going to tell you that like the entire history of Christianity is violent. They're not going to tell you that they literally use this Bible as a weapon to scare Black people that they stole out of believing in what they believed in since birth and literally giving them only this nugget. This is what you aspire to be. Otherwise, you you have nothing. And so after a, an entire lifetime of having nothing, like, is that what you want for the rest of existence? Because your soul doesn't die. You will burn forever. I hate it. <laughs> so uh, much. Yeah, I think a 
lot of, of Black people started recognizing their church trauma for what it was around that time period, like the 80s, 90s period. Of course, maybe sooner around like the sexual revolution in the 70s, but certainly around those 30 year period, there was a shift of intellectual kind of acceptance that was not a group intellect for Black people. There was a surge of Black individualism that I think allowed people to look at their own religious rituals and backgrounds and practices as a whole for what mm -hmm. they may have been, even containment practices, as you sort of mentioned. So I, I appreciated that the film brought that into play, but at the same time now, that concept is a little dated, right? Yes. The idea of the gangster in hell, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, I heard Gangsta's Paradise back in the day. Uh, Sam? <laughs> right, right. I, so it, I mean, it's a little dated now to, to have that be the overarching concept of a film mm -hmm. but you know white people do it all the time how come black you know producers have to be avant-garde well that's true uh, but also now when i think of black people and hell i literally only picture Lil Nas x sliding down the stripper pole to give satan a laugh dance and honestly if i had to choose it's, it's not a choice <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's I all like good. <laughs> hang on to that. Right? You keep it always. My friends, anytime we make a terrible joke and someone says, you're going to hell, I'm like, I hope it's on a stripper pole or right. no sparkly boots. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Exactly. So, definitely. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts on this movie? I don't. I liked it because, you know, we'll... I think we can start talking about it as a period piece now. You know, it really is kind of a sign of the times. And I've already said this before, but I liked Spike Lee for this, for really having all the triggers in one. And it's so different from some of the, you know, contemporary, more contemporary, rather, Black filmmakers, like some of the ones I guess we'll talk about in the future. Mm -hmm. It's just there was a time period where people acted brand new about Black trauma, mm -hmm. you know? really did and that time period this was the style of movie that was absolutely necessary looking yes. at it now for me as a younger black person is triggering it's a little bit too much you know <laughs> yeah. too scary because the shit's too real but also you know I realized that these are the kind of movies you can't ignore and mm -hmm. who cares about a protest that can be ignored so yeah. I love it for that reason it, it like I said it checks the boxes for me I love it I love that you love it because I also love it for all of those reasons um, and it's been a staple even without because obviously when I watched this as a child I did not understand some of the uh, bigger context things and now watching it as an adult I'm like wow wow this movie is old and um, it still matters but let me ask you this have you seen Antebellum yes Okay. I loved that movie. We covered oh. that last. <laughs> that was a great movie. I love Janelle Monet. You're talking about that one, right? Okay. Yes. The amount of times I said, but God, Janelle Monet. <laughs> that was an incredible movie. Yeah, that was great. She was incredible in that movie. I sweated a lot while I was watching it for that, but also her outfits. Just, she just 
bodied this movie but that was a movie that i felt like people should be forced to watch if you ever want to talk about that one i'll talk your ear off i mean the the era of female-led black (laughs) movies is just another Uh revolution really i loved that movie uh same yeah we'll definitely talk about that at a later date um do you have any uh social medias that you would like to plug uh, sure. People can follow me on Twitter if they want. It's Hedda Mel underscore Mel, H-E-D-A underscore Mel. Um, I post semi-regularly, semi-interesting. <laughs> so, you know, you get what you what you want. I also have a website if anybody's interested in reading any poems or uh, workshop material. It's just melsharer.com. But other than that, yeah, I'd love to see people on Twitter. Cool. I love it. So you can follow this podcast on Twitter at GITM Podcast, and you can follow me on Twitter at WitchXPudding. Um, the next movie that we're going to cover in this series is going to be Jordan Peele's Us. Stay tuned. Okay, bye.